Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to Groggy Doctor Who. Groggy, yeah, it's it's not sleepy. Doctor Who is having just more or less woken up and watched Doctor Who. It's the morning. The sun is shining. We're watching Doctor Who. Yeah, it's weird, but it's cool. The, the, the light in here is different, just like the colors are different. In the opening credits, I didn't realize that was a thing. I, I mean, unless I wasn't paying as close attention as I thought in the previous story, I really think the color scheme of the psychedelic opening credits and closing credits have more pinks and blues than they did previously i also have never noticed before what really yeah it's a good thing you're doing this podcast with me isn't it yeah it's very much (laughs) a fact check uh podcast (laughs) of like all my previously held beliefs or just things that i never thought to really care much about are now being questioned and answered Mm. by your presence of course like i said I might just not have been paying close enough attention previously, but I'm certain that the ending credits last time really, really went back and forth from from red to green and back because uh, I was I kept joking it's Christmas credits, mm-hmm. and this time there was some red, but it never went to the green, and there's a lot more of sort of like blue and pink, which I I prefer these ones so far. If we're rating the credit sequences mm-hmm. of season seven of Doctor Who, uh, I'm gonna say that uh, Doctor Who and the Silurians is uh, at the top of my current list. Well, I don't know how. So the 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 reason why we're watching this in color mm-hmm. is because so initially. Um, in 1978 when the BBC did a, a big audit of what they had left in the archives and they had a lot of black and white 16mm um, film prints of the original videotape masters of Doctor Who of the John Pertwee era mm-hmm. uh, of which this was one they didn't have any color copies left mm-hmm. but in 1972 BBC sold a package of John Pertwee episodes to, I think, Time Life or something. And that's when Doctor Who first uh, appeared in the U.S., 1972. And they were color then. And they discovered in 1978 or some somewhere in the 70s or 80s, perhaps, that someone in the States actually videotaped the this story and a couple other ones that are that were also not... Uh, existing in color in the archives and so they used that videotape copy married it together with the um the film copy they had to get the color out so if you're noticing maybe the color isn't quite and maybe things are a little bit fuzzy it's because they're melting a a domestic video recording from like 45 years ago with a 16 millimeter film uh, black and white film thank you for telling me that i was genuinely going to ask because i did notice that the color seemed a little like the tone was just not not quite what I expected. And I, part of me wanted to just chalk it up to the fact that we were watching a Blu-ray last time, right. which was glorious technic- Technicolor. Um, and and that maybe this was just, uh, I didn't necessarily know that there was some technical reason, but uh, I am pleased to know that my instincts were correct. Yeah. That there was something, something different going on because it was a little fuzzier. It was a little, um, yeah, just like a little little bluer in places and a little yellower in other places that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah there are there i think that's the way that this one was done there was uh, it was also done for other ones there oh goodness as we get into it a little more uh, we, yes when do we get to the uh, era of chromodots that's what i was going to say chromodots <laughs> i think there are See, I, I listen to doctor who podcasts yeah, it's which is amazing do you know do you want do you want me to explain chromodots now or no i think that it's important for you to wait and explain chromodots in the context of a story that that used chromodots to get us what we watch sure i'll do that Hashtag teaser. Hashtag teaser. Um, so yeah, we watched episode one anyway of Doctor Who and the Silurians, as is our tradition of watching one, the first episode of a thing and then podcasting about it. Um, so yeah, what did you think of this one? 
I really, really like this. <laughs> this is fun. Maybe the reason that I didn't like the third Doctor so much before is because I never really saw him in stories that had him and the Brigadier going back and forth and him and Liz going back and forth. Like those three are quite the trio. They really, they really are. I mean, the 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 doctor and the brig across the deck desk, that little back and forth with you know the brigadier, like doing a very good job at his job. Mm-hmm. You know, saying okay, you know, thank you for bringing me this information. That's a possibility. It could also be this. It could also be that. Like, it is important for him to not just jump to conclusions. It is his function mm-hmm. to figure out what is actually happening. Uh, and then the doctor getting so frustrated with that, which you know. He's he's still the doctor. He's yeah. a time lord. He's just you know they keep bringing you things and you keep turning them down. Like just that was that was an understandable frustration and mm-hmm. I appreciated it. And then <laughs> the brigadier just being, you know, he is a man who has a been in charge of people for a long time. He knows how to deal with this sort of thing. He's like, well, then I just suggest you bring me something that I can't turn yeah. down. I just. That was a brilliant exchange. And then it just got even cuter talking, you know, you're not re- a regular Sherlock Holmes and calling him Watson. I just, my heart just fluttered. That's, there's your there's your Dr. OTP right there, the Brig and the Duck. I, yeah. Well, I mean, I have always kind of had that thought, even not having seen this era. Uh, so, you know, when there's the argument about whether the Brigadier is a companion, I'm like, absolutely not. Just, he's not a companion. They are, mm-hmm. they are friends. Mm-hmm. That's a tote, like that's their, their friends and colleagues and yeah i don't know they're buddies in a way that's that's different um from from the way that he interacts with his companions totally different kind of love but it's still love yeah it there's there's an adversarial relationship a little bit too at times i think not necessarily with with the person but with the position that you can tell the doctor is very standoffish with authority figures yep. like the brigadier a little bit here because he's very hesitant to go mm-hmm. down there to the, to the caves to begin with with dr lawrence you know he's very standoffish with him you know he starts like explaining what a cyclotron is and the doctor sort of wanders around the room uh-huh. and just sort of like why asks the question when he's mm-hmm. done and yet then there's dr quinn who's a scientist mm-hmm. very genial and he's like instantly latches on because you know he's uh we're talking with a fellow scientist he yeah. knows what you know he's like mm-hmm. second in command underneath dr lawrence so he, he him and mm-hmm. and dr quinn have a kindred spirit from from the get-go i also think that one of the reasons he latched on to dr quinn was not necessarily just because of the the scientist camaraderie mm-hmm. it was it was because he recognized that he will a scientist is going to know more of the things that he wants to know. So it wasn't necessarily like, hey, buddy, we're both scientists. It was like, this is the guy I'm going to be able to get answers out of. And I think, I would like to think that the doctor, just like me, was instantly not particularly trustful of Dr. Quinn Mm -hmm. because he was too genial. He Mm -hmm. was so just jovial and laying back and laughing and Mm -hmm. just so gosh darn happy to help. And, you know, when the doctor notices the uh, the logs and the pages, like, I think that he was he was on to him and and a bit suspicious. I mean, maybe maybe not as much as I think we'll find out as we continue along with the story. But I was I I instantly liked him, Dr. Quinn, in a way that made me suspicious. (laughs) I was like, nope, too much, too friendly, too easy. Yeah. And sure enough, then his uh, his his muttered conversations with um, um, little Miss Frilly shirt. Miss Dawson. Miss Dawson, yes, uh, probably little Doctor Frilly shirt. I shouldn't say little. Um, I, I suspect she's a doctor of some sort. Yeah. But uh, because uh, you know they keep calling Liz Shaw Ms. Shaw, even though she's yeah. a friggin' doctor times three. I don't know. So so yeah, they're they're having their muttered conversations, and I was like, yep, I pegged it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, not to be trusted. But yet not evil by the looks of it. Maybe not. Maybe well, they are evil. Well, I mean, we don't know yet. It, yeah. Like there was there was no mustache twirling. <laughs> that's that's for sure. And I mean, like I have said before, I sort of know the broad strokes of this story. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit hard to, to sort of judge. And I think... I think I may have read the target novelization for this story. Remember the title? Is it, I don't know, Doctor Who and the Exciting Adventures of the Silurians or something? I don't remember. Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, for what it's worth. Ah, okay. So, but yeah, like I'm, I'm remembering more about this than I thought. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Either that or somebody talked about it on a podcast. Like Because I'm remembering book, book-related things, so I don't know. It was one of the earlier target novelizations, I believe. Not that you started reading them in, like, 1979 or anything like that. But No, I mean, and I read random ones just out of out of order so mm-hmm. and have no real memory of, of any of them except for specifically the un, uh, An Unearthly Child. There were, uh, I believe, drawings in Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. Hmm. Yeah. Do you remember drawings? Maybe. I have a really crap memory. Oh, I'm drawing size for questioning poor Spencer drawing uh, stuff on the wall in his in his hospital cell from I, his experience. I recognized some of those uh, some of those drawings. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've already we've already been shown secrets of what's to come. Yep. Yeah, that's actually a really kind of clever, canny way to do things. Mm-hmm. To uh, you know, it's Paleolithic drawings, but what are those things? And they don't call overt attention to it in any way it's just you know the doctor's trying to ask some questions and almost you know gets strangled and realizes okay that's not the way to go about this but yeah so like and the camera doesn't linger too long and like do a zoom in on any particular thing so it's very sort of very subtly directed Mm -hmm. in a in a way that's just like if you're paying close attention you're probably going to notice something later like there was a big lizard yeah um somewhere on the wall there and sure enough you know that's something that we had seen at the beginning and now we get to see an even better shot of it during the cliffhanger when it's menacing the doctor yeah part of me wonders i mean i'm not to discredit tim coom tim coom who was directing his first of two stories here um if that was like i'm not to discredit him saying if 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 this is on film and the uh, he had ability to cut between stuff and do cutaways and stuff would he have shown like a shot of the silurian on the wall oops spoilers um uh it's it's in the title i think you could say it yeah but uh but because it's multicam they don't have they can't dedicate a camera to sort of get a shot that maybe they can't get so is it part of me wonders is it um enforced minimalism or is it minimalism by choice when it comes to multi-cam directing sometimes i'm gonna give this one to tim coom because we've seen some pretty fascinating like and amazing stuff with multi-cam directing i think if he had wanted to do that to you know basically hang a lampshade on the the drawing any of the drawings on the wall he absolutely could have made that happen i have perfect faith in the camera operators and himself mm-hmm. and the switcher um to have been able to you know do just a camera movement and a zoom in right. onto one of those mm-hmm. um you know you just pan away from what's his face the crazy guy spencer spencer yeah the guy whose whose mind has cracked a bit pan over from him to one of his drawings zoom in on it and linger yeah. tim coom could have done that and he chose not to so i say bravo that's tim coom yeah I, th- I think if that was a modern tv show i bet you we would see it kind of way i bet we would mm-hmm. do told to direct our attention yep. towards that mm-hmm. but here no such i mean i imagine that was probably in the script that malcolm hulk wrote you know uh, mm-hmm. the spencer's drawing stuff on the okay, you know including the dinosaur we saw and including the alien or something i bet mm-hmm. you they probably dictated that because it would be amazing if like the set designer says how oh, do we put a silurian <laughs> on the wall wouldn't that be fun i think there's mm-hmm. definite purpose there 
Yeah, I, I think for sure, especially with the doctor having lines about it later, saying it turned him into a brilliant Paleolithic, you know, cave mm-hmm. artist. Yeah. So, you know, we needed to see that in order to to have that later line make sense. So, mm-hmm. I, that's definitely a Mal- Mac Hall clink thing, I would think. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's a good he's a good writer. This Malcolm Hulk guy. Is this his first story, or was there one before this? First solo story. Oh, right, because obviously um, the war games. Yeah, and and the faceless ones also written with David Ellis back in season ah, four. Ah, that's right. I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, but this is his first solo outing. He'd written this one fairly soon after um, actually finishing the war games. Mm-hmm. It was originally going to be third in the run, but then there were issues with the next story, which had to be rewritten which also was eventually rewritten mostly by malcolm hulk Uh-oh. so this one gets shifted to second because the script was ready and then now he's busy writing um basically most of the third story the ambassadors of death so malcolm hulk is all over season seven of doctor who also season seven is often regarded as one of the best seasons of doctor who no coincidence there yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. Yep, I've heard so many good things about season seven, and always sort of balked at watching it just because it's you know mm-hmm. not not my preferred era of Doctor Who. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I'm finding a lot more to like at least at the beginning of the story than I expected. Uh, included in that is Liz Shaw's amazing outfit. Yeah, you are a fan of Liz Shaw's fashion choices and so far in Doctor Who. Oh my God. And I mean, like I can understand that there are probably some some critiques out there about, oh, of course they put her in a mini skirt and you know, she's she's looking all pretty and done up and, and but you know what? That's just like that is the way you have to operate in the world as a woman. And I mean things have, have changed a bit. Like I am not expected to wear a mini skirt to work. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to wear makeup to work. I don't have to have my hair done all pretty. I don't necessarily have to wear like the fanciest stuff. But you know what? If I want to be taken seriously Mm -hmm. and I want to be, you know, invited to the right meetings and have people really, truly respect my opinion in the way that I want them to, I do. Mm -hmm. And I grumble a little bit to myself every morning as I'm putting on my makeup and I'm doing my hair. But I realize that that's just that that's still the society that we live in. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's like, you know, men also have to to dress to a certain standard. Like, you know, they're required to wear business casual gear and stuff like that. And, you know, most of them shave and, and, you know, keep their hair cut nicely, like all that kind of thing. But it's not quite the same level of everyday prep Mm -hmm. time that is added to your routine and the extra cost of buying all of that stuff because my god to get makeup that actually works on my face it is friggin expensive Mm -hmm. so anyway so I'm, i'm just saying that i understand the way that they have her styled and, uh, you know, from a, a Watsonian perspective, haha, you get to say, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so from like in, 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 in the, uh, in the fiction perspective, I really appreciate her character as a woman who chooses to, you know, okay, if I have to, if I have to dress this way, I'm going to do it right. Like she, she totally rocks that red sweater dress mm-hmm. with the, uh, the cool sort of metal bangly belt. Um, and and the the high the high boots like because you know at the time she could also choose to dress um, you know in probably like a very sensible pair of slacks and a blouse and stuff you know because you have one or the other that uh, the other woman what was her name Miss Dawson Miss Dawson yeah so you know she's wearing something that is perfectly professional but it's definitely more sort of buttoned up literally yeah. um, and you know frilly and stuff and we've got uh, Liz Shaw who when she's not being you know seconded by unit and mm-hmm. thrown into the mix she's teaching classes um, and doing her own research and stuff so to me she strikes me as somebody who just she has her own sense of style and 
and she's going to lean into that. And mm-hmm. I really like that. Like I, I have certain outfits that kind of make me feel extra fun and powerful and good at the same time. Like, um, for example, uh, there's a fairly short um, dress with like a whole bunch of uh, black and white stripes. It's the one I bought for Paul Cornell's birthday party. I remember. Yes. And so I, w- I wear that with a pair of leggings underneath mm-hmm. it and some cute little boots and a little like um, black shrug over the top of it with some like, you know, statement jewelry. And like every time I wear that, like I feel I feel the way I see Liz Shaw looking mm-hmm. in this story, like, you know, looking kind of kind of fun and kind of modern. Um and I always get compliments on that on right. that outfit every time I wear it, and it just I, I'm like I I see myself a little bit in the way that she puts herself forward. She is uh, she's not afraid of people not taking her seriously in in that way because she's confident that she knows what the hell she's doing, mm-hmm. and the people that she interacts with most closely are the doctor and the brigadier, who very clearly value her opinion and know her worth as a uh, as a coworker. However, it was slightly annoying that the brigadier's just like, okay, you're going to deal with personnel, and the doctor's going to deal yeah. with the science. I was like, ugh. Um, but well, well, if you mix it up the other way, the doctor de- dealing with the personnel. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I, You know, that's... that. Under, that's a that's a good use of his resources yeah. on the brigadier's part, uh, but still, it was you know just a sort of like yeah that's that's the way it would work. Sigh. Yeah, I mean you know the doctor does have um, extraterrestrial experience and other things, and that is yeah. kind of unit's remit. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, they, when they did find Liz Shaw, they found her sort of as a replacement for the doctor because they were trying to find yeah. somebody on earth who was as close to his his amount of mm-hmm. knowledge like about meteorites and stuff that, that they could get and uh and had the doctor been around they wouldn't have even bothered to look for somebody like that because they would have already had him and now they just have have both which is you know maybe a little bit redundant from a personnel standpoint mm-hmm. like do we really need to pay both of these people um but uh but it's it's also nice from a scientific standpoint because having two heads is is better than one uh to kind of figure things out and bounce hypotheses off of each other and you also have one that's human and one that's not so one of them goes into the cyclotron room Mm -hmm. and actually feels some weirdness which i don't remember enough about the story to know what that is or what it means it's very exciting well she she comments that like there's a feeling of terror or something almost fear in a way yeah where's that coming from I don't know, and it's so great that I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's exciting to watch the rest of the story, and you have no idea really what is going to happen, apart from maybe the broad strokes. I'm not too sure. But. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention specifically uh, Liz Shaw's boots, and I would like a pair like that. So if you know of a boot maker that is similar, please tweet me. Okay, boots. Yeah. Not for cosplay purposes. I just, like, yeah. I've genuinely been looking for a pair of boots like exactly like that to wear to work with a low heel yeah. and, uh, you know, the leather or leather fake leather that reaches like halfway up the calf like yeah liz shaw is my fashion guru oh she is uh and we'll get to see more of her great fashion choices in other stories too just hashtag Mm -hmm. more hashtag teaser i look forward to it very much um bessie makes uh her first appearance in doctor who in episode one Mm -hmm. as the doctor is fixing her uh, and singing a song from alice in wonderland yeah, that's a the Jabberwocky right. is a, a poem that appears uh, in maybe in Through the Looking Glass and not in Alice in Wonderland. I can't remember. I think it's Through the Looking Glass. But anyway, I I quite enjoy that poem, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that it was singable. But hey, there you go. I think probably Pert we made up a tune right in the spot and sang it. He has a a pleasant voice. 
He is a musician as well, don't you know? He used to play guitar and probably sang a lot in like his various radio career, I think. I think he did an he did an album called John Bartry Sings Songs for Drunken Sailors or something like that. Yeah. I had no idea about any of that. John Pertwee was a like a comedian, a, you know, a multi-talented, did lots of funny voices on the radio and stuff and was hired essentially because, oh, we can get a guy who will be funny mm-hmm. uh, to be Doctor Who, apparently because Troughton was mm-hmm. dead straight down the line serious. Uh, and then Pertwee just completely went against type and like considered this as a big chance for him to actually prove himself as an actor. And Pretty much plays it straight as Doctor Who, much to everyone's surprise who cast him. Yeah, he's good. And wow. I, I, yeah, I've only ever really known him as the third Doctor because I haven't run across him in other things mm-hmm. the way that I have most of the other actors that I've seen in Doctor Who. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, he was in, he was in like a few carry on movies mm-hmm. and he would go on to be Wurzel Gummidge, that weird uh, scarecrow person that yeah. certain generations of British and Australian school children find endearing, but I find kind of creepy. Yeah, I, I know enough about that to know that I never ever want to see one second of it so please do not send me videos of that just send me boots just boots the shaw boots uh anything else about episode one? Oh, probably lots of things it was i like the sets um uh, i thought the cave set was really good yeah uh, especially the lighting on it um like when they sort of come through to the place where they're about to be menaced by the the giant lizard dinosaur thing mm-hmm. um i thought that it was it was lit very effectively because i was like oh did they just switch over to an actual cave and you were like no this is just still a set i was like oh yep. mm-hmm. it was on videotape <laughs> Uh, yeah, which I didn't realize because of the lighting. Like I thought, it was mm-hmm. like, is this film now? Uh, the set with the cyclotron room is cool. The cyclotron itself is an amazing. I don't know how they did that like weird light up special effect thing, mm-hmm. but I would like one, please. That's fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is all. This is all very, uh, very uh, delightful and delicious to look at. Mm-hmm. Hooray! Nineteen seventy Doctor Who. I'm glad you're liking it so far. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm on board. Well, well, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knew? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> Neither did I. Oh. All right. Well, uh, we have a whole day ahead of us and breakfast to get to, um, so we'll draw an end to this one. But we'll be back later in the day with more episodes of Lazy Doctor Who about Doctor Who and the Silurians. Yes, we will. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.